The gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 2. And I will be reading verses 22 uh, through verse 40. This is the gospel of Christ. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. The word of the Lord. Well, I find it um, uh, rewarding in some ways to begin the new year uh, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Lord's day with the Lord's people. Wonderful, wonderful beginning. We try to make beginnings this time of the year. I know some of you've made uh, New Year's resolutions, but a lot of people have given up the notion. I pretty much have too. I didn't make any New Year's resolution, at least 
uh, consciously that I know of. Uh, I might have thought of two or three that I should make. But I did not do so because I began to recall my past track record in this area. I look back about five years ago, maybe 2007, and I can remember, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older and certainly I need to lose some weight. And I, I made a, a resolution that I would get down to 180 pounds. And in 2008, I followed that up with another resolution uh, that, well, I would change that and get down to 200 pounds. I think about 2009, I, I, I said, well, you know, my new, new year's resolution this year is going to develop a more realistic attitude toward weight. And a couple years ago, I... I said, you know, I'm going to work out at least three times a week. And last year, I, I got to the point where I said, I think I'll just drive by Gold's Gym <laughs> once in a while. I broke that, too. <laughs> so I'm not uh, making any New Year's resolutions. Um, you know, you get disappointed in yourself. So you say, why, why bother? I hope you do better. Now, I've thought a lot about why people don't keep their New Year's resolutions. I hope you've done better than mine. There must be one or two or three or four out there who've actually done something about those kinds of things. Uh, but anyway, uh, why is it? And of course, it's quite clear that habits are hard to change, aren't they? We are creatures of habit. Now, that's an old saw. Everyone says it, but it's absolutely true. And in some ways, it's a blessing to be subject to habituation. It helps us to, to get along in life and predict life and so forth, but it also is our bane. Uh, we get into certain bad habits, and we don't break them easily. Habits are just simply highly resistant to change. Now, this subject uh, actually uh, led to the text today. I began to think about and make observations about human nature in general and, and spirituality and spiritual habits. Human beings are also highly resistant to spiritual change. Just as we are highly resistant to change our habits, we are highly resistant to spiritual change. Uh, and that is a disposition that we possess. So much so that the Bible describes the fallen condition as a kind of habituation of thinking. And the fallen human condition is described in the Bible as actually being dead to the things of God. In our fallen human state, we have fallen into a deadness and we have fallen into a deadness that uh, persists in our life. And it becomes the natural state, if you will, of the fallen world. We are dead, says the Bible, in our trespasses and in our sins. Dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Uh, the Apostle John puts it another way. Men love darkness rather than light. Now, how do you break out of this? If we can't break out of our habits, how do you break out 
of a kind of egocentrism that's fixed upon yourself and your interests. That is a kind of a circle that is, is quite closed and does not admit the light of God in one's life. In this sermon, uh, what I want to talk about today is to talk about what it means for Christ actually to come into the world as light. And really what Christmas means and what it means for Christ to become incarnate is to break into that, if you will, habitually closed circle that we find ourselves and God breaks in and changes our heart and life that we might behold our interest who is truly uh, in God. It is in and through Jesus Christ that we uh, have a profound revolution take place in our lives, that he enables us and qualifies us uh, to uh, have a new life, a new mind, and so forth. But God must break into the status quo. He must break into the darkness, break into the deadness, and enable us to see him. It is not for nothing that the scripture says, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is God's gift. We are saved through a gift. God breaks into our world with the gift of his son that we might receive him. Now, let us look at a man that I know very little about. Maybe you can find more in some Bible dictionary, but I doubt it. We know very little about Simeon. Simeon. Simeon is a man that appears in the Christmas story. This actually is about 40 days after Christmas, by the way, after Jesus' birth. Joseph and Mary have gone up to the temple. She had to complete seven days of purification. And then another 33 days on top of that. And then she was to go to the temple and along with her husband and they would make an offering it's also true that Jesus is being presented uh, following his circumcision. He's being dedicated uh, in the temple, much like Samuel was dedicated to Eli, the priest. Mary understood who Jesus was to a certain extent at this point. She didn't understand everything. Simeon is going to tell her things about who Jesus is that she may not have fully understood. But when we look at Simeon, we have here an old man. How old? I don't know. But he's quite old, and he has believed God's promises, particularly as they are found in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55, some passages that I've been preaching from uh, during the Christmas season. And those passages are clearly reflected in his speech. But he is a godly man, and he's trusting the Lord to fulfill his promises to Israel, and that he has prayed, no doubt, that he would be able to see some of these promises coming to pass. He also, obviously, is a prophet. He's filled with the Lord and his presence. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. And he takes the baby in his arms when he comes into the temple and it appears to me that he actually sings. This is a poetic passage. If you look in chapter 2, verses uh, uh, into this passage of Scripture, 
uh, verses 29 through 32. It's very poetic and it actually can be sung. And it appears that he took Jesus into his arm and he sang this or chanted uh, this poetic passage that had been given to him by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is also has a famous name uh, in Latin, uh, nuc diminutus, or uh, to diminutus means to dimis- dismiss, nuc means now, now dismiss in English. And he's saying that after he gives this, he has seen the consolation or the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. He can now depart or die in peace. That's about all we know about him. He goes on, though, to say some things that I want to focus on as well as this. He looks at Joseph and Mary and particularly speaks to Mary some words that at first do not seem to be too comforting. Now, I want to drop back and look at what he's saying. What did he say? He says, Sovereign Lord, you have filled your, fulfilled your promises, especially as given in Isaiah the prophet. That's what he is singing. And his eyes now have beheld this child, which is the salvation He says, God's salvation. Now notice what he does. He takes the baby in his arms and he holds it and he looks at it and he's singing and he's saying, this is God's salvation. A person is God's salvation. This baby is God's salvation. Deliverance for his people. And then he goes on to say, that this baby, this Christ, will be for all people, Israel and for all people. I want you to notice the scope of that saying. He doesn't just simply say you will be the consolation of Israel, but he also says for all people. Here is an enlarged vision of what Jesus finally will do and be. He is not simply for the people of Israel, though he is for the people of Israel. He is the glory of Israel. Make no mistake about that. And remember that the Jewish people, in one way or another, due to the fact that Jesus comes from them, in fact, have uh, been given special privileges and a certain status in the Old Covenant. And then he goes on to say, a light of salvation to the nations. That's where the Gentiles and the rest of the nations come in. Now, there is, in some sense, no greater summation in all of the Bible as to Jesus' identity and mission than you will find here. There is no greater summation in all of the New Testament that I can find, or the Old, of as to who Jesus is and what his mission is. And what you find is that Jesus and his work, that really constitutes the gospel. This is the gospel. It is the person of Jesus Christ and what he is to do for us. He is God's gospel. He is God's salvation. Now, I want to go on to the second part. Today is Communion Sunday, and I'll try to keep this as short as I can. Uh, But Simeon also uh, continues to speak particularly to Mary. Now, there's speculation that Joseph, somewhere along the line, by the time we get to the Uh, end of this passage that I read to you in verse 40, he dies during the maturation of Jesus. And notice that Jesus, when he 
uh, is maturing, he, he, he matures in all areas, in wisdom and grace and stature. He matured a true incarnation, a true man. And the Lord Jesus Christ, somewhere along the line, had to go to a funeral of his father and, and mourn him, just like anyone else, just like some of our people have done this year. Many of you have mourned the loss of loved ones. Jesus understands that as well. But he particularly speaks to Mary. And he blesses both Joseph and Mary. And he said to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Now that might seem like strange language to you. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. How can he call the fall of many? Well, because he will be rejected and those who reject him will fall. Now, that's not really good news per se as such. You know, I've titled this sermon, Did Jesus Really Bring Peace? Well, if some people are falling and some people receive him and are rising, obviously not everyone is on the same page. You know what it means to gather around the Thanksgiving table and not all of you are on the same page as to opinions about politics and everything else, it can get a little bit tense. Now just think if the very essence of your life, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not, it can divide families right down the middle, just like the Civil War did. There were families in the border states where one brother fought for the North and one fought for the South. Talking about a division, that's a deep one. But it is not as deep as the kind of division, in one sense, that is created when one receives Jesus and one rejects him. He will be spoken against. I thought Jesus was the meek and mild and he went around and did good to all people. Why would you want to speak against him? Well, read the Gospels. It is quite clear that Jesus stated strong opinions. He was emphatic. He wasn't wishy-washy. Anyone who can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life doesn't leave you very much space or room to have an opinion. You're either for him or against him. And so, in this case, it creates hostility. And what is really important here is that not only is he spoken against, Jesus, in some sense, is also the one who tries the hearts of human beings. He reveals what's in your heart. Now, I think this is quite fascinating. Think of what it is that one person can reveal your heart by your attitude toward that person. This is really what Simon is saying to the son of Mary. The son you have born will reveal the hearts of human beings. And how will they be revealed? They will be revealed as to their attitude toward him. What if it's true? Let's just give it. Let's just stipulate this. That the way you view Jesus is the way you view God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in God. If you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. What if that's the case? Really and truly, it's stated in the scriptures. What if it's really the case? Isn't that a kind of revelation of the human heart? What is your attitude toward Christ? 
As Yourself Pelican says in his wonderful book, Jesus Through the Centuries, it is that some people bless his name, but there are millions who curse in his name. Isn't it interesting? He even divides our history. As I stand here before you today, it is 2012 A.D. Now, you can call it C.E. Common Era, but you're still dividing by the person of Jesus Christ. History, aren't you? There was a time before Christ and a time after. I don't care what, what you use. It's hard to get away from the fact that he dates our calendar. It's a development in human history. The Arabs really don't have any conflict with this at all, by the way. It's just modern, secular Americans and Europeans. I've noticed a lot of Arab Muslims have no problem in talking about B.C. and A.D. But modern, secular people get very upset about it. We used to have a young man who attended this church before he went on to Japan. Um, he attended in Sunday evening services from time to time. Uh, he was... His senior thesis at New Paltz was denied because he used A.D. and B.C. It made the professor very angry. And he appealed to me for some help since I was teaching there at the time, and I tried to give him some, and it all got straightened out after he threatened a lawsuit. <laughs> Sometimes you have to be wise as a serpent, uh, even though harmless as a dove. Jesus, he's a divider. So did he come to bring peace? Yes, in a real sense, he came to bring peace. But not, not all people want peace, do they? He exposes the human heart. And I would ask you, and not just simply rhetorically, what is your attitude toward Christ? And what your attitude is toward this one is your attitude toward that one who's called the Father. That's what Simeon is saying to Mary. Now, she learned some new things here. She probably didn't know that the mission that he would conduct would be to the Gentiles. She probably didn't know that her own soul and heart was going to be pierced by human reality as he lived his life and she saw him rejected. And finally, in the end, his reject and rejection by being spat upon and mocked and made fun of. Again, I say this is the year 2012, or uh, we are roughly then 2,000 years since Jesus was born. Have things changed? In the scheme of things, your weight is really not very important. Now, Dr. Imbrado might not agree with that and a few others in the healthcare industry, but in the scheme of things, it really isn't that important, is it? Not really. Um, in the scheme of things, a lot of things are not very important. If you consider them in the light of eternity, they're not very important. But there is one thing that is absolutely crucial. It's not those habits that you're trying to change. The one thing that you really, really, really must get right is your attitude toward Christ. Because if you received him, as many as received him, the Gospel of John says, 
He gave them right to become the children of God. And that's eternal. I don't mean to minimize trying to change bad habits. I don't, I don't minimize discipline that it takes to do many things in life for achievement. God knows that we need those things. We have to live in the world. But in the true scheme of things, in the big picture, my friend, the most important question that you can ever address is the question that Jesus asked his disciples, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Everything boils down to that. Now this is basic. This is nothing new to you who attend Westminster Church. But I will say this, if you are to have a blessed year this coming year, you must go back to bedrock and get that right. It is not something you, that you do that arises from your flesh. It is truly a gift of God. But you pray, as Augustine and others prayed, as we find in the New Testament, I believe, O Lord, help thou my unbelief. I'm uh, reading a new and very difficult book by Alvin Plantiga. I'm not going to recommend it. Um, it's one logical formula after another in many sections. And if you did not take logic or go through these things, it will not be rewarding to you. Now, it has a deceptively simple title. Where the Conflict Really Lies is the name of his book. And what he is exploring is, is there a conflict between theism, or our view of God, and science? For the naturalists, those who don't believe in God, and exclude him, say that biblical Christianity is at odds with science, while they have a worldview that perfectly fits with science. Alvin Planica is considered the world's greatest religious philosopher. And what he finally concludes is that Christianity may superficially look at odds with science, but at the deepest level, there is a concurrence and agreement. Whereas naturalism appears to have a concurrence with science. But he says, at its deepest level, there is a profound conflict. Now that stands the reason. Who gave us this world? And where did, in history, did science develop? It developed out of the Christian West, not out of secularism or naturalism. The short story is, with respect to that book, it also is causing division. But I'm telling you, when you read through it, you don't find anything wrong with the logic. You just have to reject it. Because I think he's made his case. But my friend, the real conflict is even deeper. It is between your soul and the being of God. 
And if you receive Jesus Christ, the very simple truth is, you know the Father, and you do have peace. But if you've rejected that one who came into this world as light, my friend, there is deep conflict in your soul. I would ask you this coming year that when you find you're in conflict, to raise one simple question in your life. Lord, is my heart right with you? Just ask that question. When the conflicts come and you're conflicted, ask one simple question. It's basic. Lord, is my heart right with you? Amen.